This week's episode is brought to you by Wink. Now, I hesitate to reveal this to you all, but I am a distinctly unclassy person. Wine, in particular, has always mystified me. But thanks to the fine folks at Wink, I no longer have to be such a déclassé fellow. They will curate fine wines for you based on your responses to a simple questionnaire and ship them right to your doorstop at fantastic prices. Now I can pretend to be a far classier person than I actually am and impress all my friends with my sophisticated wine tastes. And you can too. Wink is offering listeners for the podcast a $22 discount. Just use offer code History of Japan, that's one word, History of Japan, at checkout, or use the link at my website, IsaacMeyer.net. Check it out, have a bottle, and crack it open while you listen. We can be classy folks together. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 284, Rags to Riches, part 3. So first things first, you probably noticed that there have been a lot of Sengoku-themed episodes on the podcast lately. There is a reason for that, so before we get started, I'm very excited to announce that I've just finished recording my part of a documentary for Netflix on that very subject. That's going to be going live sometime towards the end of this year, hopefully, though of course film production is always tricky business. You can never be sure with these kind of things. Details will follow when we get closer to release, I promise. For now, I can just say that I think it's going to be very cool. But for now, we've got another story to tell. We left things off with Hojo Ujiasu, the third lord of the Hojo family, proving the doubters wrong and establishing his own military prowess by winning a decisive battle at Kawagoe, in 1545. A bold night attack savaged an enemy force that badly outnumbered his own and pretty much ended the Ogigayatsu Uesugi clan, which had plagued his father for decades. A good start, to be sure, but could he capitalize on that victory? In the aftermath, Ujiasu would spend his time on two things. First, he would get very engaged in an administrative reorganization of his domains because he was, by all accounts, a clever administrator not just a good commander. For example, Ujiasu put a lot of effort into reorganizing the road network within his territories. That might strike you as fairly basic. Odds are you have a distant memory somewhere from high school history about the Roman Empire and its road network being central to the strength of the empire in terms of facilitating trade as well as marching legions around the empire. That's just as true in Japan as it is in Europe. But there was another reason for this reorganization. You see, the road networks of the Kanto had been laid out back in the good old days of the original Hojo clan some hundreds of years earlier. The center of their road network had been the city of Kamakura. The new Hojo clan used Kamakura as a symbol of legitimacy for their claim to the mantle of Hojo, but governed their territories out of the massive castle complex at Odawara, about 45 kilometers or a bit less than 30 miles west of Kamakura. So Ujiasu ordered the roads of the Hojo lands be reorganized with Odawara, not Kamakura, as their focal point. All roads would lead to his castle. And of course, just like the roads that flowed to Rome, these roads made Odawara, and by extension the Hojo clan, central to the region's economy, 
and it made it easier to march Hojo armies around the region more or less at will. Beyond reworking the road network specifically, Ujiyasu also improved his land surveying techniques inherited from his father and grandfather to accurately assess and mobilize the region's wealth and support his armies. Remember last week when we talked about the Hojo system of administration? Ujiyasu is not solely responsible for it, that system did evolve over time, and the building blocks existed prior to his ascension. However, if I had to choose one person to credit with it, he would be probably the most important figure. He put the finishing touches on that system. Beyond administration, Ujiyasu also built on the momentum from Kamagoe by continuing to press the Uesugi out of Musashi province. The Ogigeyatsu branch of the Uesugi fell apart within a short time after Kawagoe. This is, after all, an era where families that can't win battles consistently, and thus get some spoils of war with which to reward their supporters, well, they tend to fall apart. The Ogigeyatsu had been losing to the Hojo for a while now, and this final defeat simply confirmed they were unable to turn their momentum around. However, the other branch of the Uesugi, the Yamanouchi, were still a threat. Ujiyasu would spend the next six years locked in a struggle with the Yamanouchi. However, here too, he would ultimately be successful. In part, that was because the Yamanouchi were not just fighting the Hojo. The Takeda clan of Kai province, led by a young man who would become known to history as Takeda Shingen, smelled blood in the water and joined the pylon to the Uesugi. Shingen would deal the Yamanouchi a series of humiliating defeats the year after Kawagoe, taking advantage of the Hojo's success to seize Uesugi territory for himself while the clan was recovering. Ujiyasu himself would keep the pressure up as well. In 1551, he defeated the Uesugi lord Norimasa once again. However, that victory, great as it was, was in many ways not to Ujiyasu's benefit, because this was the moment when Norimasa would make a fateful choice. Realizing that he was not capable of beating the Hojo or the Takeda, he would abandon the south and make his way north. Norimasa would go to Echigo province, modern Niigata prefecture, and throw himself on the mercy of one of his own vassals, Nagao Teritora. The Nagao had been long-standing vassals of the Yamanouchi Uesugi, and so Uesugi Norimasa appealed to those bonds of vassalhood and asked Teritora who already had a reputation as a brilliant military commander, to lead the war against the enemies of the Uesugi. Terutora would agree, with conditions. Specifically, Norimasa did not currently have an heir, so Terutora demanded Norimasa adopt him as his son and heir, making the Nagao lord the lord of the Uesugi. Norimasa, having no better options, agreed. And that is how Nagao Teritora became Uesugi Teritora, though he's generally better known by the Buddhist name he took after being ordained as a Zen priest, being something of a Renaissance man, Uesugi Kenshin. We've talked about Kenshin once or twice on this podcast. He's something of a towering figure in this period, and it's not hard to see why. Kenshin was a brilliant battlefield commander pretty much his whole career. He was one of very few people who managed to defeat Oda Nobunaga in an open battle, and his rivalry with Takeda Shingen to his south became the stuff of legend. However, it was really the war against the Hojo that defined his career, because that war was what led to his ascent to headship over the Uesugi in the first place. Now, Kenshin was a great battlefield commander, and he had a good understanding 
of how to parlay that talent into something even more important, a ferocious reputation that preceded him on the battlefield. He built up something of a personal legend as an unstoppable military force, going so far as to personally identify himself with the ferocious Buddhist protector god Bishamonten. That's the kind of reputation that tends to spread some doubt among your enemies. Nobody wants to hear that this unstoppable badass is coming your way and coming to crush your army. In addition to his fierce reputation, Kenshin had one other big advantage, a very close connection to the Ashikaga family and the imperial court. Now you might be thinking, Isaac, this is the age of civil war. The Ashikaga are impotent beyond Kyoto itself. The imperial court can't really contribute much to a military campaign beyond well wishes and stylized poetry. But there was one other thing the city of Kyoto had to contribute, something I didn't really know about until I started doing research for that documentary. The court had access to European recipes for gunpowder and designs for European firearms. How they got them is a very interesting story, and that's something we'll talk about in the future. But for now, I want to focus on how important this is for the war in Eastern Japan. For the daimyo of Western Japan, this kind of thing was not such an issue. There was already a growing European presence in the west of the country by the 1550s, and so guns could be acquired directly from the source. All you had to do was let some troublesome Christian priests into your territory. For Eastern clans like the Hojo, Takeda, and Uesugi, though, that was less of an option, and so the technology had to be gifted to you. If, like Uesugi Kenshin, you were friendly with the Ashikaga shoguns and the imperial court, well, they might give you one hell of an edge, but the Hojo had no such special relationship with the court, and so they did not get ready access to this important new piece of military technology. And that was a substantial disadvantage in a period where firearms were proving to be extremely decisive and very important, especially for armies that relied on levying a large number of foot soldiers, like, for example, that of the Hojo clan. What all of this meant in practice was that the Hojo advanced northwards pretty much ground to a halt. Ujiyasu was forced to fight campaigns against both the Uesugi and the Takeda, who were also looking to take advantage of the chaos to expand their territory in the Kanto. Thus, the three clans found themselves locked in a struggle over Kosuke province in the northern Kanto plains, one that they'd never really be able to settle definitively. Again, Takeda Shingen and Uesugi Kenshin are best known for their rivalry with each other over the north, but they also campaigned in this area against Hojo Ujiyasu with some regularity. For example, most Sengoku nerds have heard of the Fourth Battle of Kawanakajima, where supposedly Kenshin and Shingen end up actually fighting face-to-face -face in this really intense back-and-forth, though our sources for that battle are, to say the absolute least, highly suspect, but it is a cool thing to think about, and the battle has become very iconic in terms of Sengoku history, and the whole legend of this Uesugi Takeda rivalry, but less well-known is the fact that immediately after the battle, Kenshin mobilized a separate campaign down in Kosuke against the Hojo, hoping to take advantage of what was probably, though not certainly, a Takeda defeat to move against the Hojo without having to worry about Shingen taking advantage of his distraction. This proves the Hojo were a serious strategic consideration for Uesugi Kenshin, and it also kind of says something about Kenshin's priority. After beating his great rival Shingen, 
his focus immediately turned to somewhere else. But of course it makes sense. After all, Uesugi Kenshin's claim to legitimacy was his status as Nuesugi. That clan's claim to fame was as Lords of the Kanto, the family of the old Kanto Kanreis. Now there were these upstarts claiming to be a new Hojo clan who had seized the Kanto from its rightful masters. Makes sense Kenshin would take that personally. And take it personally he did. In repeated campaigns against the Hojo, Kenshin constantly attempted to break through the Hojo fortification network. In 1561, he made his most successful attempt, driving deep into the Kanto to lay siege to Odawara Castle itself, and also capturing Kamakura, where centuries before, the Uesugi clan had ruled as the Kanto Kanrei. Kenshin was able to make a visit to Kamakura's Tsurugaoka Hachiman Shrine, further cementing himself as an heir to the Uesugi legacy, but he was unable to break through Odawara's defenses. He settled for burning the surrounding town after a two-month siege, and then made his way back home to the north. Takeda Shingen, meanwhile, seems simply to have really wanted the wealth of the Kanto for himself. That also makes sense, considering his clan was confined to the mountainous and far less wealthy region of central Japan. That Kanto presence, by the by, is the origin of the legend of the great Takeda cavalry, as we've talked about before. Kanto horsemen and Kanto horses were considered to be better than average, and thanks to his partial seizure of Kosuke province, Takeda Shingen had some of both of those things. Anyway, the biggest thing I want you to get out of this is that here, finally, the Hojo reached the northern limits of their expansion. Hojo Ujiasu was, as we've seen, a good administrator and a good commander, but he finally found a nut too tough to crack. The west, too, was closed. After all, the western mountains were the actual home of the Takeda clan, and to boot, they were mountains. The kind of infantry-heavy armies of the Hojo would not do well over such rough terrain. Any kind of advance would be a slow and very costly slog. The southwest was home to the powerful Imagawa clan, once lords of the Hojo, and the new lord Yoshimoto looked for all the world to be a man not to be trifled with. Even to the east, the Hojo met their match. Ujiasu's father Ujitsuna had succeeded in building the clan a foothold in the provinces of Shimosa, Awa, and Kazusa, more or less modern Chiba prefecture, but the local clan there, the Satomi, proved far more durable than he expected. By this point, the Hojo, with three wealthy provinces all to themselves and partial control of three more, badly outgunned the Satomi, who had partial control over three very poor provinces. Ujiasu also seems to have been a better commander than the Satomi clan daimyo. For example, in 1564, in the Battle of Konodai, the Satomi attempted to draw Ujiasu into a trap using a classic technique. Their small army of around 8,000 or so attacked a Hojo force of around 20,000 and then fell back, looking for all the world like they'd mistaken the size of the Hojo force and were now scrambling to get away, a prime target waiting to be finished off. Except this was a feint, a fakeout designed to trick Ujiasu into chasing them right into an ambush. Had Ujiasu pursued, he could well have lost a substantial portion of his force, but he very quickly realized what was up and instead sent some of his forces ahead to scout out the ambush and attack the ambushing force himself, turning the trick on the Satomi and badly mauling their army. But here too, turning victories on the battlefield into strategic accomplishments off the field proved very elusive. 
there's probably no better illustration of this than the fact that the battle I just described was, in fact, the second battle of Konodai. Ujiasu's father, Ujitsuna, had fought and won an engagement against the Satomi in the exact same place 26 years earlier, but here the two clans were at it again. Constantly pressed by their neighbors, the Hojo were never able to commit a sizable enough force to fully subdue the Satomi, and thus the war dragged on. Hojo Ujiyasu has a generally positive reputation among the interested in this period. He's one of many lords of this era to be granted a badass animal nickname, the Lion of Sagami, to go along with the likes of the Dragon of Echigo in Uesugi Kenshin and the Tiger of Kai in Takeda Shingen. And it's true he was a good commander and a good administrator. But honestly, for all the world, he reminds me of nobody so much as Napoleon Bonaparte, and I don't actually mean that as a compliment. Ujiasu was, like Bonaparte, good at winning battles. However, also like Bonaparte, he was not good at making and keeping friends, or at playing the diplomatic games necessary to isolate opponents diplomatically. He could win battles, but he could not win the peace. For the rest of Ujiasu's career, he would continue to fend off challenges from Kenshin's sieges to the north, from the Satomi to the east, from the Takeda to the west, but he would never be able to secure permanent peace on any of these fronts, and instead found himself locked into constant war against his neighbors, even when he seemed to be winning battles more often than he was losing them. Even when new developments altered the balance of power in the region, Ujiasu was poorly positioned to take advantage. For example, in 1560, his powerful neighbor Imagawa Yoshimoto was, seemingly out of nowhere, ambushed and killed by some nobody named Oda Nobunaga. It was basically now open season on the Imagawa lands, but Ujiyasu, try though he did, found himself unable to seize those territories. Takeda Shingen aggressively invaded the Imagawa lands and drove his forces out, and when Ujiyasu continued to press the issue, Shingen invaded the Kanto himself in 1569, once again burning down Odawara's castle town, though the castle itself which was quickly gaining a reputation as being nigh-invincible, once again proved siege-proof. By the time Ujiasu himself died in 1571, the situation looked broadly much the same as it had when he came to power. Sure, the Ogigeatsu Uesugi were gone, but Kenshin's Yamanouchi branch was stronger than it had ever been. The Imagawa were gone, but the Takeda had benefited from that far more than the Hojo and those goddamn Satomi just refused to give up the ghost. After Ujiasu's death, power over the clan passed to Hojo Ujimasa, his eldest son. Once again, Ujimasa had been nominally family head since 1560, but in practice followed his father's advice until Dearest Daddy passed in 1571. We've seen this sort of arrangement before. It's a good way to ease someone into leadership without the immediate pressure of having to dive right in. Ujimasa proved to be a somewhat different type of leader than his father. He had military credentials, to be sure, and had fought in his father's campaigns ever since becoming an adult. However, he was not really a skilled warrior like the old Lion of Sagami had been. Instead, he was an able administrator, that at least seems to run in the family, and occasionally a gifted diplomat. Realizing that he was now cornered on all sides by hostile clans, one of Ujimasa's first goals was to decrease the size of the family enemy list, to cut some peace deals at long last. The easiest choice were the Takeda, 
the Hojo and Takeda shared a mutual hatred for the Uesugi, and besides, Takeda Kenshin was increasingly concerned not with the Kanto Plains, but with the other side of his territory and the growing realms of Oda Nobunaga. So just two years after Shingen's armies had burned the Hojo castle town at Odawara, the Takeda and Hojo sat down and worked out a deal. Takeda rule over the former provinces of the Imagawa would be recognized by the Hojo and the two clans would play nice. That peace would last for six years. In the interim, Ujimasa would have a few years to consolidate his lands and recover from a war on all fronts. In 1578, Ujimasa would get yet another lucky break. The Uesugi Lord Kenshin, who had so troubled his father, would die suddenly, leaving the Uesugi leaderless. This was, of course, an ideal thing to have happen to your rival, but in the case of the Hojo, this was even better than you might think because of a quirk of family diplomacy. Way back in 1569, the Hojo and Uesugi had attempted to reconcile their differences and form an alliance against the Takeda, because that's just how the wheel turns. That attempt had taken the form of a bit of family exchange. Hojo Ujimasa's seventh brother was sent to the Uesugi not as a hostage, but to be adopted into the Uesugi family as Uesugi Kagetora. Kenshin, you see, had no biological sons. Instead, he had adopted two potential heirs, the aforementioned Kagetora and his nephew Kagekatsu. Kenshin seemed unable to decide which to favor with family headship, and instead came up with the idea that the two adopted brothers would share leadership of the Uesugi clan. This, of course, is absolutely not at all what happened, Instead, the two turned to feuding and fighting each other for supremacy. Ultimately, Ujimasa's brother Kagetora would lose and be forced to commit suicide, but in the interim, the Uesugi clan was deeply divided, and that civil war drew attention away from the advance of their enemies into Uesugi territory. The Uesugi position was now badly damaged, and the clan would really never recover as a contender for national power. On the surface now, the Hojo position was better than ever. The Takeda and Uesugi were both substantially weakened, so much so, in fact, that very soon thereafter, the rival clans would attempt to form a new alliance, this time against the Hojo. Oh boy, isn't Sengoku politics great? Putting aside decades of rivalry to try and suppress what was now unquestionably the strongest clan in the Kanto region. However, the appearance of Hojo strength was deceptive, and here we get to Ujimasa's biggest failure. He did not recognize why it was that everything seemed to be breaking his way. He failed to see that his good fortune was a result of a sea change in the political situation, the rise of the Oda clan. The Takeda had begun to spiral down the drain ever since their defeat at the hands of the Oda at Nagashino, and it would be the Oda, not the Hojo, who wiped them off the map. The Uesugi clan civil war over succession was a result of bad planning on Kenshin's part, but the biggest beneficiary was not the Hojo, it was Oda Nobunaga, who took advantage of the chaos to grab territory off the Uesugi while they were so distracted with their own problems. In the Takeda case, the Hojo were at least able to take advantage of the chaos to grab some lands from the Takeda clan, but the Oda-aligned Tokugawa and the Oda themselves did far, far better. By the time Oda Nobunaga died in 1582, Oda territories already directly bordered on Hojo lands. When his territories were then later seized by the peasant general Toyotomi Hideyoshi, it became clear that Hideyoshi's ambitions were little different than those of his former master. 
he aspired to rule all of Japan himself. And that's who Ujimasa now had for a next-door neighbor. Not really what I would call luck. Ujimasa seems to have not really appreciated the danger of Hideyoshi's advances. And to be fair, they were unprecedented. When Hideyoshi took more or less control of the Oda territories in 1582, they covered about one-third of Japan. It took him about two more years to fully neutralize opposition within the Oda ranks, and then within six years, Hideyoshi was able to subdue pretty much the rest of the country, a lightning advance by the standards of the time. Ujimasa, however, seems to have believed that two things would protect him from Hideyoshi's ambitions. First, there were the substantial defenses of the Hojo territories, with their fortress network, as well as the terrain of the Hojo lands. Hideyoshi's lands were to the west, and thus his armies would have to cross the mountain passes into the Kanto plains, a difficult prospect. Second, Ujimasa put his hopes in diplomacy, and specifically the good graces of a man he knew had Hideyoshi's regard, Tokugawa Ieyasu. He arranged for his son and heir, Ujinao, to marry one of Ieyasu's daughters, and seems to have believed that a marriage alliance between him and Ieyasu was enough to get Ieyasu to cover for him with Hideyoshi. To be fair, Ieyasu was not just a good neighbor. Many years before, one of Ujiyasu's sons had been a diplomatic hostage with the Imagawa around the same time Ieyasu had been, and the two knew each other well. Ujimasa seems to have put his faith in that boyhood friendship between his brother and Tokugawa Ieyasu. I should note that what I'm saying here are my inferences from my understanding of the situation. We don't have like a diary or anything like that from Ujimasa that lays out his rationale for why he's acting like he is. However, if I'm right and this was his plan, Ujimasa fundamentally misunderstood what he was facing. Hideyoshi's connections to the west gave him a healthy supply of cannons more than capable of overcoming the Hojo fortresses and Tokugawa Ieyasu was many things, but a sentimental man was not one of them. He was not going to put his own neck on the line, marriage or no marriage, childhood friendship or no childhood friendship, to save his relatives by marriage from their own political foolishness. As early as 1588, Hideyoshi sent a letter to the Hojo inviting them to visit Kyoto to demonstrate their friendship. In other words, an ultimatum to surrender to the new master of Japan, or face the consequences. Hojo Ujimasa was, by this point, officially retired in favor of his son Ujinao, but continued to exercise leadership over the clan, yada yada yada, you get how it works. His response was to ignore the letter, and continue to do so in spite of repeated requests from Hideyoshi, as well as insistent letters from Tokugawa Ieyasu. Ieyasu repeatedly told the Hojo in very precise language just how foolish continued defiance of Hideyoshi was. He does seem to have cared enough about the fate of his daughter's new clan to at least want to give them honest advice. While in Kyoto attending to Hideyoshi's sick mother, a nice personal touch in terms of building relations with Hideyoshi, Ieyasu wrote a letter to a senior Hojo advisor, quote, in delaying his trip to Kyoto, your lord is absolutely going too far. He must come at once. It is essential. I am in Kyoto now, and it will be best if he comes while I am here. Ieyasu was willing, then, to put in a good word for the Hojo if they were smart enough to come submit, but that's about as far as he would go. 
in the end, Ujimasa was just not willing to listen. He did send one of his sons to Kyoto, but did not come himself, and that son was instructed to bargain with Hideyoshi as an equal, not to submit. Now, I know we've done an episode on Hideyoshi before, but I really want to talk about him more at some point, because, good lord, he is just a fascinating guy. But the important thing to understand about the man who would come to reunify Japan is that he did not look kindly on anyone he felt was disrespecting him or not taking him seriously. The Hojo were a powerful clan, to be sure, but Hideyoshi could now call on the resources by this point of about two-thirds of Japan's landmass. Any attempt to pretend that some regional lord was on his level was just insulting. So Hideyoshi ordered his armies to mobilize, and in 1590, they marched into the Kanto Plain 200,000 strong, including a force of Uesugi, that clan having already pledged its loyalty to Hideyoshi. The Hojo were torn as to what to do in response. The nominal lord, Ujinao, wanted a decisive field battle, but even with their impressive administrative talents, the Hojo could only mobilize a maximum of 50,000 troops, so they would be outnumbered 4 to 1. And Hideyoshi had far more access to the key weapon of late Sengoku warfare, the Arquebus, than the Hojo did. So in the end, the cooler head of Ujimasa won out. The Hojo would settle into Odawara Castle for a long siege. Here, once again, Ujimasa made a gamble. The Hojo fortress was well prepared for a long siege with massive stockpiles of supplies. Hideyoshi's massive army, meanwhile, would need to ship everything it needed to survive to the siege lines, a massive logistical undertaking that only a brilliant general could manage. The great warlords Takeda Shingen and Uesugi Kenshin had both been unable to do it. They had laid siege to Odawara Castle and failed. Was Hideyoshi really so different? Did he think he was better than them? Turns out, yes and yes. Hideyoshi had not lain idle during the years of negotiation with the Hojo. He had a careful plan in place that not only allowed him to feed and supply his 200,000-man army, but to basically run his camp under peacetime conditions, with plenty of food and invitations to acting troops to come perform for his soldiers, and regular parties for his senior commanders. On the Hojo side, meanwhile, as the siege went on, panic began to mount. Hojo Ujimasa seems to have wanted to stick things out to the bitter end, but faith in the Hojo cause was wavering. Hideyoshi showed no signs of running out of supplies and leaving, and the other Hojo fortresses were falling one at a time around the Kanto. In the end, by August 1590, the writing was on the wall. Ujimasa, having lost the faith of the clan, was overruled by his son Ujinao, who agreed to a surrender. Ujinao placed his faith in the mercy of Hideyoshi. As it turns out, probably a bad choice. Hideyoshi spared the garrison and the army of the senior Hojo retainers, but the Hojo clan itself was annihilated. Its senior leadership were all ordered to commit suicide. The remainder of the clan was scattered. After a century of leadership in the Kanto, the latter Hojo were no more. Ieyasu did intervene one last time, but just to save his daughter. So what can we learn from the rise and fall of the Hojo clan? Well, in many ways, their arc is prototypical of the Sengoku-era warlords' best and worst qualities. Their rise was a result of brilliant leadership, as well as careful institutional planning, 
a combination of flashy brilliance with clever long-term decision-making. To hold the massive territories they acquired in a short time, they developed impressive new institutions and strategies. However, like many, many other warlord families, they also failed to understand some of the fundamental changes brought about by events after 1550, the value and importance of firearms with their relative ease of use, as well as the ambitions of men like Nobunaga and Hideyoshi, who were not so much interested in reworking the established order as they were in burning that order to the ground and starting over. The Hojo were far from alone in those failings. Off the top of my head, you can say pretty much the same thing about the Takeda, for example. But of course, there's one more unique thing about the Hojo. After they were gone, their lands would be handed off to one person who had proven his loyalty to Hideyoshi beyond a doubt, Tokugawa Ieyasu. His reward for standing by Hideyoshi was control over these wealthy lands that already had a substantial, impressive infrastructure of administration built upon them, but I'm sure he won't do anything untoward with all that wealth and power. Turns out, handing that much power to someone as ambitious, if quietly so, as Tokugawa Ieyasu would, in the end, prove to be a bad choice for the Toyotomi family. I don't know they would have taken much comfort in it, but in that sense, at least, the Hojo clan did get some measure of revenge on the man who destroyed them. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. And I'll see you next week when we tackle the interesting stories of Japan's demons, the Oni.